0: Mark chapter 4 is where we will be this morning. You know, there's a story about a uh, rather famous entomologist who was in the early days of his education. He's beginning to study insects. Well, he took an internship under a very famous zoologist, a very coveted internship there. And the first lesson was to give him a dead fish with the instructions look at the fish. After a while, I will ask you what you have seen. Well, he left. The student began to look at the fish. After a few minutes, he he concluded that he had seen everything there really was to see of the fish, but the professor was nowhere to be found, and so he had nothing to do except continue to look at the fish. So he kept looking. He kept looking at the fish. Several hours passed. He, He began to... Take a closer look and begin to notice some of the finer details that that he hadn't considered before. And finally, the professor returned and began to ask him about the fish. And so the student was telling him, okay, yeah, I I noticed these details. I see the fins are in this way and this this coloration is in that way. And the professor seemed to be disappointed. He says, oh, is that all? You've missed some of the most basic details. So he left and left him to look at the fish some more. This went on for days. For days, this student, all he did was, for four days, look at the fish. That student ended up writing an essay, and he told the whole story about how all this, and he went on to say how this was the singularly most valuable lesson that he ever received in all of his studies. Look at the fish. This illustration has often been used to encourage students of the Scripture to look at the text. Look at the text. I can recall even in my own seminary education, I was told to, Here's, here is Psalm 23, verse 1, which many of us know, as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not once. Psalm 23, verse 1, and I was instructed to make 25 observations on that one verse when you first hear that and you get that and you go, oh my, 25, there's not that many, even, there's not even 25 words in the verse, right? Well, as I got working on that assignment, okay, I did, I got 25 things. I was like, okay, this is great. I turned that in the next week, only to have the professor tell me, okay, that's great, now make 25 more for next week. Okay, that's, all right, so you sit down and you begin to take a closer look at things you hadn't previously considered. And that verse contains a lot more information than I would have ever considered going in. I did eventually have those 50 observations about the text. And the point of the exercise is this. No matter how familiar you are with a verse, no matter how well you think you know it, you need to examine the text without assuming that you know all there is to know already. There are so many verses that if you've been a Christian for any number of years or amount of time and you've been in church for any amount of time, you, you just, you hear these verses over and over again. There's so many that we can just rattle off, that just flow off the tongue because we're just so familiar with them. But we always need to be examining the text and always approaching it with fresh eyes whenever we come to those passages that we may not assume that we already know what's going on. Our assumptions may very well be correct, but we don't just want to approach it with that mindset. We want to look at the text. Well, today's text is such a familiar one that it would be very easy for us to just rush through it because, hey, we already know what's here, right? Oftentimes, if, if there's a, a new student of the Word or a new, someone who is new to teaching, that this is a common text that is a, a go-to text for new teachers. Uh, their first lesson, their first Bible lesson they want to teach. This is a common one uh, that is picked because, well, for, for a variety of reasons. And so it's very familiar to us. But if we approach the text and just say, well, okay, I already know this text, we're making a mistake. We need to approach it with fresh eyes and take in all the details and embrace what this text has for us. We may very well find that our previous assumptions were correct, and that's all well and good. But we need to come in with fresh eyes and approach it as a fresh study. This is the parable of the soils. Often, many of Jesus' parables present various interpretive difficulties, but I love this parable because Jesus Himself provides the interpretation. He tells us what it means, right? He explains it for us. And so that is very helpful as we begin to study this text. But let us begin to read this text this morning. Again, we are in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 1 as we see the parable is going to be given to us today. The parable given, Verse. look at verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the bird came and devoured it. Another seed fell upon rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no roots, and it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And He said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the parable given. There's a few details here that I think are, are striking in many ways. First, Jesus says, Listen! Now, Jesus doesn't always open up his teachings in this way, but here he says, listen. He's, he's about to communicate some important truth here. Behold, listen, behold. A sower went out to sow. And then he closes his parable with a, with a similar command. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He begins by saying, listen, and he concludes by saying, you need to hear this teaching. Jesus says this is an important thing for us to consider. And the theme of hearing, the theme of listening, is going to be an important theme, even in Jesus' explanation of the parable itself. Jesus says that listening is important. The disciples, they did not understand exactly what Jesus was getting at with this teaching. Okay, they they hear it, and Jesus is teaching the crowd. Well, later on, they they come to Him, and they ask for an explanation. Verse 10, And when He was alone, those around Him with the twelve asked Him about the parables. And He said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In many ways, this is a parable concealed. It's In a lot of ways, this is a very challenging paragraph in the midst of the story. Jesus has a parable, and he's, he's going to explain it to his disciples, but he first tells us why he is speaking in parables in the first place. He says, yes, I'll explain it to you, but this is because to you it has been given to understand. I'm going to explain because that is your prerogative as my disciples. But he says, to those on the outside... Everything is in parables. I cannot help but think of just the, go back one paragraph or, or two paragraphs back into the end of chapter three where we see Jesus' family is coming and looking for Him and, and they're on the outside and they're calling for Him. He's in the inside of the house and they're calling for Him and the disciples have to come and say, hey, you know, your family's looking for you outside. And quite literally, in a physical sense, the family is on the outside and His disciples are in the inside of the house, but Jesus says, he almost makes that a, a spiritual truth as well. They are on the outside of the kingdom as well. He says, to those on the outside, everything comes in parables. And verse 12 is a particularly hard verse to embrace. He says, everything is in parables. Why? Why do you teach this way? Here's Why? so that, it's a purpose statement, a purpose clause, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus seems to be saying that the reason why I'm speaking in parables is to keep those who are in rejection of my message to keep them in their condemnation. That's what, it, that's what it says. And I know that that can be hard for us to reckon with, hard to understand why would Jesus do this. And yet, this is, this is actually a consistent theme. We find this in different places throughout scriptures. So we see places like in the Old Testament where Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then later, the text says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was in rejection, in outright rebellion against the Lord. And then the Lord later hardens his heart. Even here in this text, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah. And in the context of Isaiah, there there was a people already in willful rejection of their God. And Isaiah was sent with a ministry really of condemnation of a people who were in willful rejection of their God. Last week's text, we saw the blasphemy of the Spirit, where Jesus says that's a sin that will never be forgiven. These individuals, they are in outright rejection of the Messiah. They're attributing to the devil the works of the Spirit, and Jesus says, you have sealed your fates. And so it seems that the means through which Jesus pronounces judgment on the people who are in willful and persistent rejection of Him is to speak in parables, further entrenching them in their condemnation. So we must not understand that it's it's not as though Jesus is speaking in parables against people that, that were just eager to believe if only they understood These are individuals that are already in willful, persistent rebellion and rejection of the Messiah. And so their condemnation is just and it is sealed. But notice one more detail at the end of verse 13. He says, do you not understand this parable? Speaking to the disciples. Don't. Don't you understand? How will you then understand all the parables? It, it almost seems as though Jesus is identifying this parable. is almost, it's like it's a key to understanding all the parables that are, are to come. There's going to be several more parables about the kingdom. Uh, three more after this. But this is the first. And this is the most fundamental one that we need to understand. So we have the parable. Concealed from those who are in willful rebellion and rejection of the Messiah. Well, Jesus explains the parable in verses 14 through 20. The parable is explained. Verse 14, The sower sows the Word. And those are, and, the, and these are the ones along the path where the Word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones that are sown among thorns, and these who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness and the, of the riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold, he who has ears to hear. He says, the sower sows the Word, back in verse 14. Now, that, that phrase alone, the sower sows the Word, it, it is really packed with just so many things. But the nature of the sower, the nature of the sowing, and the nature of the Word itself. But we, I think is most helpful as we're understanding this parable to first understand this parable in the context of Jesus' ministry. And then we will begin to understand how the, there is ongoing significance and application to our lives today as well. But we think about the sower sows the word. There's, there's a person there. There's an action and there's a, a direct object of the action, right? Jesus is the sower. He has been going out. He has been proclaiming the message of the good news of the kingdom of God. He has been sowing the word. He is, he is preaching a message of repentance and faith. He is proclaiming the goodness of the kingdom. Jesus is the sower, and there's the message. He is sowing something. He is proclaiming something. He is engaged in some kind of activity, proclaiming a message, and He is sowing the Word, the message of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. But not everyone is responding in the same way to the message. There are different responses that we have already seen as we have gone through the last couple of chapters, different responses to Jesus Christ and to His ministry. And so He categorizes them in different ways. First, there's that first group. They, they hear, but they reject. Some are like the word sown on the path, but when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. These people who hear and they manifest no signs of anything penetrating their hard hearts. In Jesus' day, there was the Pharisees, right? There was the scribes, the religious leaders. They're already plotting to kill Jesus at this point. They are, their hearts are so hard, they're rejecting and they're attributing the things of the Spirit. They're attributing them to being the works of the devil himself. They exist in outright rejection of the Messiah, even some of Jesus's own family are seeking to restrain him. They're calling him a madman or a lunatic. In response to him, some of the, his family may have indeed have been in that first soil. Then there's a second group. They hear and they respond, but they end up falling away due to hardship. Some are like seeds sown on rocky ground, but when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Okay, there's a response there. But they have no root. They're short-lived. When disaster or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. So we think of seed in in rocky soil. You know, sometimes there is a... um, you know, you think of like a rocky you know, a garden bed, it's like filled with rock. And you think it's strange, but sometimes seeds can not sprout within the rocks, right? They, they sprout up, and, but they don't last long because there's no depth of soil there. You can just go and just, and just pick them up and they just come right out of, out of the rocks. because there's, there's nothing to ground them, there's nothing to keep them within the soil there. They, when the sun beats down upon it, they are scorched. And the sprout is destroyed. This group initially seems promising. They immediately receive the word. They receive it with joy, but there's no lasting fruit there. The hardship comes. They abandon the faith they once claimed. That hardship, he, Jesus gives a couple of different examples. When distress comes along, right? There's a trial. There's tribulation. There's, there's difficulty that comes into life. Or it could be persecution because of the Word. You know, you know, there may be individuals that come along and start hating you or persecuting because of what you claim to believe. And so you say, this is what this brings. I'm out. I'm not going to endure mocking from my contemporaries. We see that this was the case, to the response to some of people, the response of some people to Jesus in His ministry. There were some that fell away for fear of the Pharisees for fear of being excluded from the synagogue. I think of one particular story where Jesus made the blind man to see and the Pharisees were interrogating him and interrogating his parents and the text says that they were afraid of the Pharisees because they did not want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And in history, there have been numerous examples of those who fall away in the face of persecution. That is the second group. And there's the third group. They hear, but they fall due to love of the world. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They hear the Word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness, the riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. They hear the Word, they Perhaps they may have even had an initial positive response, but ultimately the, the cares of this world prevent them from producing fruit. So we think of individuals like the, like the rich young ruler who is willing to do anything. Like, oh, Lord, just tell me, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And when Jesus challenges him on his love for wealth, he was a very wealthy man, and Jesus challenges him on that point. He says, no, that's a bridge too far. I'm not willing give up my riches for the sake of Christ. There's a man that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4 by the name of Demas. And Paul just says that this man deserted me. Why? Because, and I quote, he loved this present world. The things of this world, the love of whatever it was, whether it was Love of immorality, or whether the love of riches, or the love of other kinds of lifestyles that are contrary to the Word of God, for the love of these things, some end up falling away. And then we come to the last group, this fourth group. They hear, they respond, and they produce fruit. This is they are sown in good soil. They hear the Word, they accept it, they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. There's an abundant harvest in the midst of these individuals' lives. These are those who hear the message of Christ and they embrace it wholesale. They say, yes, this is truth, and I'm giving my life to this. So in the pages of, of the the gospel here, we see many the disciples that, that Jesus called that, that were following after Him and they, they are embracing the message of Christ. And, and certainly they are not model disciples, right? These are not just rock star individuals that are just like, yeah, I want to be like that guy. That is not how the disciples are portrayed by any means. And yet, They embrace Jesus Christ in the totality of His message. And Jesus patiently teaches them and molds them into the people that He wants them to be. Eventually, that are going to be His witnesses that are going to go out and eventually die for the faith. But it all began with embracing the message as it was proclaimed. Different responses to the message that Jesus is proclaiming. We have seen even in the previous chapter some that they just seem to be interested in the miracles of Jesus. Right? When, they, when they heard all that he was doing, they were excited about how they could get you know, their, their lives, their, their physical bodies fixed and that was a tremendous thing. They praised God for that. But they were missing the point of why Jesus was there. And we know that many who initially claimed a belief, they won't stick with Him. We see this in the Gospel of John, where it says, Many believed in Him, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in man. And in John chapter 6, there's going to see some that believed in Jesus, and then just a few verses later they say they abandoned Him because they could not accept the things that He was teaching. Jesus here in this parable is teaching a lesson about the nature of the kingdom, right? He says this, the kingdom of God is like this. When the message goes out, not all will believe. But some will. And some will produce such an abundant harvest that you would almost not even believe it. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And it's in a massive, abundant harvest. One question that is often raised when studying this parable that I don't even believe is necessarily the main point of the parable itself, but it is a common question that is asked with this, the different groups of these people, which of these individuals represent saved individuals or lost individuals? How do we understand the different groups in relation to that question? I think it's a little bit beside the point. This is a parable about the different responses to Jesus and I think he's seeking to help encourage the disciples and recognize this, okay, you're going to have different responses to, different, to, to the message, but you don't need to be discouraged by these different responses. Be encouraged by what God is going to do in some people's lives. But because it is such a common question, we can consider it, and I actually think that there is answers within this text itself to that question, and I think it is quite clear. Obviously, group one is outright rejection. That is very clear. These are not believers by any means. They don't even claim to be believers. And everyone, all, all commentators, are in unanimous agreement about this reality. These are not believers, right? They, there's no debate about this. They reject the Messiah. But groups two and three, there is a little bit more debate about these two groups, though I think, again, as we study the text, I don't think there has to be that level of debate. These individuals, they seem to, and I'm lumping them together today because they're often handled in that way together. They often make an initial profession of faith, but they end up falling away. So to use Jesus' own language, are these individuals, are they insiders or outsiders? I and mean, Jesus uses that language as He's talking to His disciples. And this can be a hard thing for us to think through. This can be an emotional thing to think through because we all know individuals who once professed faith in Christ, but now seem to have fallen away and want nothing to do or different things have come up in their lives and they are just not following after and walking after the Lord. So how are we to understand them? Are they just backslidden believers? Are they just carnal Christians? Have they lost their salvation? Were they never saved to begin with? I think there are three indicators in this text that would lead us to, to answer those questions. And that the conclusion is that the only, it is only the fourth group that Jesus would say are the insiders within the kingdom. Three indications that would lead us in this direction. The first is found in the word hear. When they hear the word. And I wish the translators brought this into English. Our, our English translations really do us a little bit of a disservice when it comes to this. And in in your notes on your uh, on that half sheet, I did just there's that note on grammar there. The key grammar groups one through three. It says they hear though that that is in the aorist tense. But before I get into explaining that, all four groups are described as hearing the word. Right? that's the one thing that all four groups have in common. But with the groups one through three, Jesus says these individuals, they hear the word aorist tense. In the Greek, the aorist tense is kind of just viewing the action just as a, as, a, as a singular whole. It's often used to communicate past tense time. They heard the word. And it speaks of an action that simply occurred in the past. But as we see in our text, it didn't produce lasting effects. And the hearing of those in group one, which everyone agrees is not a hearing that leads to saving faith, is the same hearing that has occurred with groups two and three. They, they heard the word, but they didn't listen. However, things change with Jesus' words in group four. When Jesus says they hear the word, then he changes tenses and he uses the present tense when it comes to their hearing of the word. And that is an important change in language. That's not an accident on Jesus' part. This indicates an ongoing hearing, a genuine listening to the Word. It's not a one-time deal. It's not just like an in one ear, out the other, but an ongoing listening, a receptivity, and an obedience to the Word which produces much fruit. It's actually the same tense that when Jesus says, he who has it, ear to hear, let him hear. Again, that's a present tense. That's an ongoing hearing of the Word. And this distinction in hearing makes it clear that it is this fourth group that are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. That's the first indication. The second is found by observing which groups are producing fruits. Only the fourth group produces fruits. We examine the Scriptures, and we see throughout the pages of Scripture, the Scriptures are clear that Christians, believers, produce fruits. Now, we want to be clear with that. I am not an individual that is ever going to say, oh, yes, they must produce X number of fruit or X kind of fruit, and, and it has to look in this particular way at this way. We recognize there's a the process of progressive sanctification, right? That means that we learn and we grow together, and that looks differently for different people in different periods of time. And often it's not just a straight linear thing, a straight upwards trajectory of holiness. No, there's, there's up and downs with that, right? We, we do stumble in sin and even can walk in periods of sin for extended periods of time. But we must understand that while we are all in process, there is still fruit that is born. And it looks different for different people, right? Some's 30, some's 60, some 100-fold. Jesus says it's going to look different for different people. But there is fruits. And those living in outright willful and unrepentant sin and rebellion against God are not those that Jesus describes as those who present tense hear the Word. That's the second indicator The third and final indication is simply to consider the context of our passage. As Jesus has been proclaiming His message and there are different people that are responding in different ways to His message, this is a a parable primarily about Jesus and the responses to His ministry. The scribes clearly are group one, The, the crowds can be described as group two. Judas, who it has been said, Judas is going to betray him. Why? For love of money, he's going to betray him for the sake of money. There's the rich young ruler. There's Demas. All these different individuals responding in different ways. They, are, they would fit into group three. And the disciples who stick with Jesus are group four. That's the context of Jesus' ministry. That's what the parable is about, how people are responding to his message. So, those are the three indicators that would help us to think clearly about these different groups in this text. Well, that's the context of Jesus' ministry. That's how they were responding to Him. There are similar ways in which people respond to ministry today. Now, I was talking with another pastor this week about this parable, and, and he made the comment that this is the parable that he thinks about the most. All the parables of Jesus, all the things that Jesus has said, all the things that Jesus has taught, this is the one that just sticks with Him and He thinks about the most. And the reason for that in pastoral ministry, it's so common. We see different people, they respond in different ways to the Word of God. We see different people responding and so often it is so heartbreaking I know in my own experience, I probably talk to group one people the most. Individuals who are just outright rejecting the Word. Their hearts are hard in outright rejection of the Word. The Word just seems to go in one ear, out the other. It just bounces off, doesn't seem to seek in. There's no receptivity. And often, they can be antagonistic to the Word. I've also experienced others who seem to be initially excited about the faith, but usually it's some kind of social pressure. And today… A very common form of social pressure is in the realm of biblical sexuality. Oh, you're going to be you're going to be one of those intolerant bigots, are you? Oh, well, no, I don't want to be that. and so they end up falling away. It's so common. I think that there are many who are have gone through the process of deconstruction could be described as this. They, from pressure from the world, from different things of that nature, or, or even group three, those who desire the things of this world more than the things of Christ. They, they don't want to give up their immorality. They don't want to give up their greed or their lifestyle or whatever else. And so they walk away from any faith they may have once, once claimed. And this can be discouraging as sowers, can it not? I'm sure we have all experienced similar responses when we've tried to share the word of God with people. We want people to embrace the truth. We want to see it produce fruit in their lives, right? Where We want people to, to be with Christ and to be. we want to see Christ glorified within their lives when they hear and respond and produce fruit within their lives. And it breaks our hearts to see people in rejection of what God has said. Forsaking the faith, trivial things. But then Jesus talks about group four. And I believe this really is the central point of what Jesus is trying to get at. He says, yes, there is the reality that there are people that respond differently to the message, and there are some that are going to respond, some are going to reject, some are going to have an initial response, but they're going to end up falling away. But there will be some individuals... There are going to be some who hear the Word of God, they embrace it, and it produces fruit within their lives, and that is truly something to rejoice about. So Jesus wants us to see this truth, to recognize that, you know, as you sow the Word, you're just the sower, right? Right? You have the responsibility to speak the truth of the Word of God. You are just the sower. You cannot control the results. The results aren't up to you. You cannot force this ground to produce fruits. There are those who are sown. There there are many. It is heartbreaking to see those reject the truth, but there are those who are sown in good soil. And it is with great joy to see them Producing fruit for the Savior. And to see the work of Christ, the sanctifying effect of the Word within their hearts and their lives of those who don't just hear, but listen. So as we consider just a few points of application, I think there's two different angles that we can think about as it comes to applying this text into our own lives. First, as sowers, consider... That simple sentence, a sower sows the word. A sower sows the word. It takes individuals to communicate the message. Think of Romans chapter 10. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without someone communicating? A sower sows. A sower sows the word. We must be active in proclamation, right? We, can't, we don't control the harvest, but we can invest ourselves in activity that is designed to bring about the harvest. A farmer who doesn't farm can't really be called a farmer, right? The sower has to sow. But a sower sows The Word, there's a particular message at play there. with The sower, we don't get to just proclaim whatever it is that we want. We get to proclaim a message about a particular message from God. We must proclaim the Word of God. The message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But then as we do that, remember, we're just sowers. The results aren't up to us. We cannot make the seed grow. We cannot produce the fruit. That's for the Holy Spirit to accomplish within the lives of the hearers. And it hurts to watch people reject truth, but know that there will be some who hear and listen and respond and produce the wonderful gospel fruit and be encouraged by that. So we can be encouraged as sowers, but Consider even as seeds in soil or as soils, can I almost ask it this way? How is your soil within your own life? How is your soil? Are you open and receptive to God's Word? Does the Word go in one ear and out the other? Do, Do we have hearts that are always hearing and receiving the Word? Present tense hearing, right? Listening, ongoing action, When we hear, do we obey and produce fruit in increasing measures? Of course, we recognize that we need the Holy Spirit to be at work within our hearts and our lives to be producing that fruit, but we can ask ourselves, are we open and receptive to the Word of God within our own lives? If it will go, it will go. There we go. Second, is your hearing present or past tense? Is it I heard the word or I am hearing, I am listening to the word? And finally, does the fruit that we produce include us becoming sowers ourselves? Grain reproduces, right? As it grows, there's the wheat that grows the head and then you pluck it off and it can go out into other soil and plant more, Right? Does the fruit that we produce include becoming sowers in our own right, sowing the Word of God to others who will then respond in various ways? Again, this is the whole process of discipleship. We talked several weeks ago about the blueprint of discipleship. We're with Jesus and then we're sent out. I think part of the fruit of good soil is to see the message go forth from us as well. There are different times as a a fellowship that we engage in seed sowing within our community. There's really simple ways that are very non-confrontational, like just door hangers that are just real easy. We just go door to door, hanging those out. That's an opportunity, a very simple way to sow seed. There's other outreaches that we do at different points where we do that as well. And I also hope within each of our personal lives we are active in speaking the Word of God to the people within our sphere. And that can look as simple as even within our own household are we communicating truth to our own family members look within our communities, within our workplaces, within our neighborhoods. Wherever we are, we can sow the seed of the Word of God. But remember, you aren't responsible to make it grow. That's not in your hands. You are responsible to sow the Word and then rejoice when you see the fruits that that gospel produces. The fruits that the Word of God produces within the hearts of individuals, the fruit that only God can produce. That is the parable of the sower, as Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, may we be faithful sowers. Lord, may we be good soil. start with. May we be good soil who are receptive to the word of God within our own hearts and lives and then may we be good sowers who sow the word of God to others and Lord oh that you would produce fruit. Lord may you make the harvest bountiful both within our individual lives as we see your word come in and and produce that fruit within us, but also within the hearts and lives of others who hear the word of God from our lips. Please create a bountiful harvest in us and through us. May you be glorified through all of these things. In Christ's name I pray.